We are in the book of Matthew continually, continuing now. And so uh, we have been going through the book of Matthew now for a good year and a half or so. And we have just finished one section at Matthew 13, starting at uh, finishing at verse 52, and where we did the, the chapter 13, and we looked at the parables of Christ, and we had a, a teaching time called Parables, or a series called Parables. And now we're moving into uh, this next section, which is going to start for us in 1353, and go all the way uh, to about mid-chapter 16. Uh, going to finish in 1620, I think it is, where um, Peter and, and Jesus had this kind of interaction where Peter finally declares that he's the son of the living God. So this next section that we're looking at is starting today at 1353 and going to 1620. And those, those couple chapters that we're going to be looking at over the next five or six, seven weeks are called uh, Identity Revealed. And so, but today, uh, and, and, and the, the idea is that Jesus is continually... Uh, I, Revealing his identity and who he is. And as he's doing that, things are going to start getting um, more difficult for him. But today we're going to be looking at starting at 1353 and we're going to go down to 1412. So that's that's our first section that we're looking at. And in this section, Jesus is going to, as we said, identity revealed. He's going to be revealing himself as prophet. Now, he has already done that before, but he's going to be doing it again um, in a different way. And so we're going to look at that particular section today. Um, what, I, what, I, what I want to do before we get started is to read this, the scripture out loud. So we're going to start at 1353. Let's all stand and read the scripture together. And then I'll pray and we'll, we'll jump in. But 1353, it says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not <clears throat> all his sisters with us? Where, did, where then did this man get all, get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time... Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John, bound him, and put him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. <coughs> because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his, his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to, be, to, it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that your word is divinely inspired, every single word of it. And we know that this particular text was um, carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Matthew wrote. And so because of that, there's not a word in your Bible that isn't profitable for us. It doesn't do, it, it always teaches. And so I pray this morning, Lord, as we look at your word here, 
that you would do those things that you promised. That Holy Spirit, you would come now, instruct my own heart, instruct me in the ways of understanding that, um, and all of us, that we've been given a task of, as disciples of Christ, to take this gospel to the nations and that we should do it no matter the cost. I pray, Lord, that all the things that would be true and helpful, that I would say those, Lord, and anything that's not true, not helpful, you would keep me from those. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of it that we can get around it and look at it. And and the Holy Spirit comes and he does the teaching. Be with us now as we look at it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see an obvious kind of breakout of the text here. We're going to be looking at two different uh Two different places where there's uh, pictures of a prophet. And this, this, the name of this sermon is Prophets Without Honor or Prophet Without Honor. We're looking at Christ and then we're going to be looking at John. Um, and they're going to see in the first section and in the second a picture of a prophet who is saying or doing something, um, namely, or in the name of God. And then the unbelief that follows or the oppression or um, the polarization that follows. And so what I've said is Jesus now has... Um, just finished the parables, the teaching of the parables, and now he, as he's doing that, he's going to, for this next section, start I- identifying himself and revealing his identity to people. He's going to do it a number of ways. Today is prophet, um, and then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see him uh, reveal himself as supplier, the one who's worthy of worship, the teacher, and the healer. And as he's doing that, there's going to be, there's going to grow a progressive polarization, meaning um, you can't just kind of stay in the half-hearted. Uh, wishy-washy, mushy middle. Whenever you hear about Jesus, you're either going to hear that message and your heart's going to respond, yes, and you're going to come after him with everything you have, or you're going to be repulsed by that and say, no way, this is, this is nonsense. And so he's moving um, more towards the cross. He's about two years into his public ministry. There's about one more left, and there's a, there's a turn as he gets more serious, not more serious, but as the message becomes more and more known, he gets, he gets more and more known who he is. And so he's, there's, a, there's a polarization that's going to start happening um, as he's telling who he is to people and as they hear it. Now, we see there in verse 53 that he had just finished parables and that he went away from there and he came into his hometown. And this hometown is Nazareth. Nazareth, this is where, where he does his home base of ministry and this is where he was born. And so that's where he's continually doing that. Um, he always kind of returns there as his home base. One thing we should know as writers write the New Testament or really the Old Testament, um, as, as authors kind of put together their books, they always write their books with, with intentionality. Um, as things are ending, there's always a next part that's important. And so here, uh, that's, there's no doubt that that's what's going on here. There's intentional, purposeful laying out of the scriptures that he's doing here, where we're going to see in 53 through 58, Jesus saying that he's a prophet, and we're going to see him finishing up there in verse 57, a prophet is not without honor. And that verse 57 is really going to teach us about the other two sections, uh, about the following. So pretend 14 isn't there. That's not like a separate idea. Matthew, as he's writing this, is wanting us to see that there's a picture of Jesus and him as a prophet and him telling things. And as soon as he's kind of pushed away, there's another story of a follower of Jesus. And he's going to be a prophet and he's going to do something. And he is kind of pushed away by people that don't want to hear. So what happens to Christ is sure to happen to those who follow. And that's that's kind of the big idea here is um, there will be people in your life as a disciple as telling people that will hear and listen to it. But there will also be people that remain in unbelief. And so for those people, if they don't honor Jesus, 
they probably won't honor us as well. And so Jesus is not being respected here uh, in the first section, in the first section. And then we'll see how John, as a follower of Christ, was also not honored. Now, um, we're just going to take it both sections at a time. um, And so we'll start here at verse 53 and just walk through. And it says, and Jesus finished these parables. He went away from there and he came into his hometown. As I said, this is his home base. And it says he taught them in the synagogue. He taught them in the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was a little bit different. It's not like when we get here together and somebody straps on a guitar and they get the drummer. Um, it's, it's a little bit different. The synagogue was more of a teaching time than necessarily that worship time. Uh, and women were not allowed into the synagogue at all. Men would come in and they would open up the scroll and they would read the scroll. And then after they read the scroll, whoever read the scroll would make some comments and do some teaching on it. And so that was what would happen in the synagogue. And here, and we don't know why, but Jesus was known as a rabbi. He comes in and it says he went to his hometown and he went to the synagogue. And it was Jesus' turn to teach in the synagogue. And he did it. And when he did it, you can see there, so that they were astonished. So when, Christ, when men got up, it was... The commentators I read mostly would say they would kind of read the scroll and make some comments. And it was, you know, it was a general kind of teaching time. But when Jesus stands up and he does it, the authority that he teaches with as he explains the Old Testament scriptures to these people, it just astonishes them. They're just, who is this man that talks like this? He has such authority, he has such insights, and he just speaks with such power. And so, of course, we've just said that he came into his hometown and he taught that way. And so we can already start thinking that Matthew's wanting us to remember that this is his hometown. And so they knew Jesus whenever he was a little kid. They can they remember they know Joseph and Mary. They know that Jesus didn't come from any special breeding, no education. He was just a poor little boy. He swung a hammer growing up. Um, And so when they hear uh, they, they hear Jesus speaking like this, teaching in the synagogue that and they're astonished. Um, It's because. They remember little Jesus running around and they think, well, who is this? Like, it, it'd be similar for, maybe you have this experience. If we went back to our hometown and now if you're a faithful follower of Christ and you want to, you want to serve him and tell people about him and you didn't in your own hometown, well, it's a little bit different because Jesus did then. But if we go back there and we start talking about Jesus and they're like, whoa, who are you? I don't remember you like this. Um, that's, that's kind of the same idea, of course, that Jesus never sinned and we probably did in our hometowns. Um, so here we are. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we did. So <clears throat> anyway, it says here that when they were astonished, they were just absolutely astonished at this. Spurgeon has a good little comment on here as he's talking about their astonishment and what's the right level of astonishment and what's not, n- not necessarily. He says, may we always be astonished at his good works. There should be a sense of amazement and thrill as we see the mighty works of God happening when someone uh, meets Christ that we've been praying for for years and they finally do. There's a sense of, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. We don't, that's not how it is. It's like, yes, amazement. But Spurgeon goes on to say, and this is how he differentiates the Christian experience from people that don't follow Jesus. He says this, but never astonished that he's able to do them. That's what's going on there. I can't believe this man Jesus is able to do this. We're not ever astonished that Jesus is able. We know he's able. But when he does it, we still rejoice. We still rejoice. We're still excited. And you can see the questions that follow there in 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? In other words, we remember him just being the hammer swinger and creating some things. We don't see him as the creator of the world. They, they remember things like, he's just Mary's little boy. He's just that little boy of Joseph and Mary, the son of them. Not 
God's son. They, they're missing the bigger picture. They, they, they remember, he's just the older brother of James and Joseph and Simon. They don't see him as our greater older brother, which will one day give us our righteousness when we go to heaven. They, they miss the bigger picture here. And so they're asking these questions. Aren't you the carpenter's son? Aren't you, um, isn't your mother called Mary? Uh, and are not his brothers, Jesus' brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Side note, James and Judas wrote those two New Testament books there in the end of the New Testament. Also, second side note, Mary, four sons are listed here that she had and daughters. So Mary did have more children. I know some beliefs are that she remained a perpetual virgin and never gave birth to any more children, and which is absolutely not true. We can see it right here in other places, but Mary definitely had more children. Um, and so... Here we see that they're asking these questions and then, it's, and then they finish it. Where then did this man get all these things? They're just amazed that their little hometown, you know, Jesus is teaching with such authority that they can't comprehend that. And then it says in 57 that they took offense. They took offense. He taught that day in the synagogue with such authority, unpacked the scriptures with such a profound astonishment to them that they literally took offense at what he was saying because of the strong claims that he made and that he had the that he had the authority to teach the way he did he absolutely has the authority which was what matthew's been telling us that he has the authority to do this he's been showing us over and over and then jesus makes this statement and he he makes it um in this in the form of a of a proverb um if you if you want to look at the Proverbs, you can see they're kind of short little one-sentence statements that are packed with a ton of theology or packed with a ton of meaning. And that's what Jesus does here. He kind of uh, tells us this, this proverb here. And he says, a prophet is not without honor. Now here, Jesus is absolutely, just explicitly calling himself a prophet. Now, we know, we've already seen this, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, that Jesus calls himself the prophet, priest, and king. He does that in chapter 6. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12, where in 1241, he calls himself the prophet. In 126, he calls himself the priest. In 1242, he calls himself the king. So when he calls himself the prophet here, he's not saying that he's exclusively just the prophet. He's going to, as I said, over the next couple of chapters, reveal himself to be a whole lot of things. He's going to reveal himself to be prophet, supplier, worthy of worship, teacher, healer, etc. But here, in this particular time, he is clearly calling himself prophet, among other things. We've got to read the rest of the book to see them all. And he says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his household. And what he's saying is that a prophet does receive honor. A prophet does receive honor. Whenever he goes places, he receives honor. And they're due honor. All prophets are due honor. But this generally does not happen for them when they are in their hometown. When they're in their own family. We know that some of Jesus' brothers, it was, wasn't until after his death and resurrection that they understood that he was the Messiah. And so this is what uh, Jesus is trying to help them see, that he is <coughs> who he says he is. And all of this, as he's revealing himself as prophet and throughout the rest of this, uh, this section that we're looking at, he's revealing himself as all these things. It's all kind of coming to this screaming, uh, big, huge point in Matthew. 16.16 is kind of the big next benchmark we're going to get to and everything kind of goes changes after that we're in 1616 where peter makes the declaration you are the christ you are the son of god and so that's kind of the big thing we're seeing in 1616 and jesus is revealing himself here as prophet and we're getting to that place where peter's going to say that and so he's calling himself a prophet without honor 
And when he says that he's a prophet without honor, we can think, okay, if that's the case for him, certainly this might be the case for us if we are disciples. I don't know if any of you would call them yourself a prophet in this same sense, but we're all disciples of Christ and we are going to tell the message of Christ, which we're going to get to in 14, 1 through 12. But so let's just stay here. But I want to highlight one other thing in verse 58, because this is, this is pretty amazing. This is pretty amazing language here. It says in 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. And it should, I think for all of us, give us pause. Um, and we should really reflect on our lives. Because if we are believers, we want something to be said that's happening around us in our church and in our midst in our personal lives. We certainly want it to be said, we got to see many mighty works. If we're Christians, like, we want that. There's not one person that's saying, nah, mighty works, I can go, I can go either way. Um, we all want to see many mighty works done in our midst. And because of that, we should kind of take note here that it says, because of their unbelief. As a matter of fact, in Mark 6, 6, this, that's the parallel passage, it says that Christ, whenever he saw their unbelief, he actually marveled at their unbelief. The only place in the Bible where Christ marvels at unbelief. It's so strong, and it's in his hometown, it's hometown. If there's any place you would think that they're going to really like support you, it's your hometown. And so we see here one of the scariest verses in the Bible where many mighty works aren't done because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. And so I think the best question for us to ask is this. Just as an application, let's, let's pull the application out of 58 and look at our own lives and ask this question. Are we seeing mighty works done, mighty works of God, done in our lives day to day week to week would we characterize what we're seeing outside of these doors as you're walking through life would you characterize the things that are happening around you as in some in some places mighty works of god because we just said for all honest that's what we want that's what we want and so if we're not seeing it we'd be wise to ask the question do we believe he can says it's because of their unbelief. As a matter of fact, they marveled at his unbelief. Now, there's, there's two interpretations that we can take from verse 58. Two different interpretations. Let's, let's kind of think about both of them. I think there's one right one, but I want to throw them both out there and keep us all in suspense for a minute. Um, the first one could be, uh, Jesus chose not to do many mighty works there because he saw their unbelief and he just didn't want to. See your unbelief, just don't want to do it. Um, or... It could be Jesus was not able to do mighty works there because their unbelief prohibited him from doing so. Now, either way, whichever one's right, it's bad news. Okay, so either way, we know the remedy. Believe uh, whatever if it's whichever one it is, we, we're, we're, we know. Well, that means I should believe. And if I believe, then there at least opens up the opportunity if God chooses to bless that I would get to see many mighty works. We're not promised like belief equals mighty works, but we know, we know this, that the Lord does love to work. He does love to work with our belief to do many mighty works. And so we know the remedy. But I think here's the answer. Um, I think looking at Mark 6, 6 actually helps us where it says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Um, he marveled at their unbelief. He's in his hometown, remember, his hometown, he had, at least in a human sense, I'm not trying to diminish his deity with this statement at all, but at least in his um, human sense, 
he was expecting that his hometown would say yes. He marveled at their unbelief. He's in his hometown. So I think that when he sees unbelief, and the reason why he marvels is because he is profoundly grieved and frustrated with the people that he's known basically all his life. And this caused him to decide not to do mighty works there. Caused him to decide, I'm not going to do, I'm just so profoundly amazed, frustrated and grieved that y'all would be so unbelieving, but just because you've known me from a child that you wouldn't, I'm, I'm choosing not to. I think the best thing to remember is that Jesus is God and he doesn't need our belief to work. As a matter of fact, I would say your salvation is proof of that. <laughs> he works in your unbelief and gives you belief, Ephesians 2, 8, so that you can know him. And so he doesn't necessarily have to have it. But as I said, he doesn't need your belief to work, but he loves to work in your belief. And then you can see many mighty works done there. So either way, the problem is not good news. But the right response for us then is to believe that we should want to and strive for a deep belief because we want to see many mighty works done in our, in our, in our midst. To have a deep belief that he can do it. And be astonished when he does it still. Now, that's the first one. Jesus did not receive honor here because they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe and he didn't receive honor and mighty works were withheld from them. And so that's kind of the first picture that we saw here of um, a prophet who's, who's doing mighty works. We can see there, as it says in 54, that he is... Uh, where did this man get this wisdom in these works? This wisdom, he's, he's speaking to them with words and he's doing work. So he's doing words and works to them. And there's the picture of Jesus as a prophet, um, being a prophet, telling, doing mighty things and speaking. And then their, their unbelief, choosing not to listen, choosing not to follow. That's the first picture. Now we're going to go to the second picture. And we're at 14, 1 through 12. And we're coming into what I think is probably top five, might even be top well, definitely top ten might be top five most awkward texts in the Bible, especially to stand here and preach it. And it just doesn't go along with baptism whatsoever. And so I'm just like, oh, this is weird. Um, how am I going to do this one? But Lord willing, every word's inspired, and He's going to. You're going to hopefully see the similarity. As I said, remember that we just saw Jesus pictured as a prophet, and how they rebelled against Him, and He received no honor. And now we're going to see Jesus whenever He did it. Here comes uh, a follower of Christ, and since it didn't happen to Christ, we're even going to see, it didn't happen for Christ, we're going to see a picture of one happening to his disciple as well. And that's what this is. So we can see here in 14, we're going to have to explain some stuff because there's some, there's some crazy drama up in this family. Um, like a soap opera. Um, they could sell this story to a soap opera and they'd be like, we've never even thought of that. That's amazing. Write that down. Uh, 14, it says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, let's just talk about Herod. Herod, his name is Herod Antipas. If you remember in Matthew chapter 2, there was Herod. That was Herod the Great that just said, let's just kill all the babies. We'll just kill all the babies because I hear there's a king of the Jews coming. And I'll just kill them all and then I won't have to worry with it. And then that's whenever Mary and Joseph's like, well, we're getting out of town. And they got out of Dodge and Jesus was raised. Um, well, Herod the Great um, had, he was crazy and he had sons. And so we can just picture, you know, crazy sons to follow. Well, this Herod... Herod Antipas was one of his many sons, was one of his many sons. Another one of his sons was Philip, which we saw in the text. Another one of his sons, um, I can't remember that son's name. That son had a daughter. She's going to be a major player in this craziness. Um, but here, this Herod Antipas, he's, he's really crazy. And he was married, his first marriage, 
to the daughter of an Arabian king. Um, that kind of helped him unite some of the kingdoms and have some, some extra power. And it says that he's a tetrarch, which means he's a one of four rulers over a certain region. And so he's, he's always hungry for power, wanting to be the head man in charge, but there's, he's not. And so he's kind of a petty person, kind of uh, allows other people to give him some, some insight on how to rule. We see that from his second wife, which we're going to get to in a second. So he divorces that first wife, the daughter of the Arabian king, in order to marry the second wife, which we're getting to. Put that over in the shelf. Crazy man, uh, son of the, Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. Then we see this. It says, Herod Antipas heard about the fame of Jesus. He heard about the fame of Jesus. This two-year ministry that was going and this one-year ministry that's, come, that's, that's left, he started hearing about this fame of Jesus. Now, um, besides me just absolutely loving that phrase, the fame of Jesus, which is what we're to live for, one key thing is there is that he heard about the, fa- the, the fame of Jesus. Herod heard about this man who's doing a whole bunch of things, and he kind of thinks to himself, oh, no, um, this, this guy that's doing all these good works, that reminds me of somebody else right before him and that guy i killed him i beheaded him and so I, since i took him out this guy's doing some of those same things so this guy right here is just the reincarnation of john the baptist i killed jtb here's jtb back he's ready to just come take me out he's crazy so we can see here that herod who was a sadducee that didn't believe in a resurrection thinks that john the baptist was resurrected into jesus and so his theology is crazy he just kind of throws everything into a big pot and stirs around and says that's my theology that guy's going to kill me and so he, he's just freaking out now the more accurate translation of what harris actually says for us in verse two but i just wanted to give you an idea he says he said to his servants this is john the baptist he has been raised from the dead that is why these miraculous powers are at work within him and so since um, the big thing for us there, as we see in verse 2, since it says he has been raised from the dead, we know that the, the rest of the story, as it's telling us about John the Baptist being alive, that the rest of the story is really a flashback. So if you're a lost watcher, you can hear that zoo, 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 we're flashing back and the rest of 3 through 11 is going to be a flashback um, of the story of John the Baptist whenever he's alive and the impending death that comes to him. And so here we are at the flashback, and we're seeing this start right here in verse 3 of how Herod had killed the John the Baptist and why, as he hears about Jesus, he's freaking out thinking John the Baptist is back to life. Here's what happened. For Herod had seized John, that's John the Baptist, bound him and put him in prison. He had seized him and bound him and put him in prison. Um, Now, the first thing that we should note is if any Herod who has power doesn't like the message of somebody, they would just kill him. They would just kill him. But he doesn't do that to John. He just binds him and puts him in prison, which means one thing that we can understand about John is that John was a righteous man. And when he was righteous, because he was righteous, everybody knew. Like, John's righteous, everybody knows he's righteous, and so he's thinking, if I kill this righteous man, I'm going to have, you know, some craziness coming up in my house, and I don't want that, so... I know that he's righteous. And so I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to bind him and, and keep him in prison. And so it says here that he put him in prison for the sake uh, of Herodias, his brother. Now, Herodias just wanted John to be dead. And he's like, no, Herodias, that's the, that's the, the uh, daughter of that third brother. That I can't remember the name. Herodias 
was saying, let's just kill him, let's just kill him, let's just kill him. She didn't like him at all. And he's like, no, we're not going to kill him. I'm just going to put him in the, in the jail because if I kill him, then things aren't going to go well for us. And so we know that he is a righteous prophet, John the Baptist, because he's not dead. He's just in prison. We're going to see how he gets dead. And then it says, um, he did it for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife. Now, when you hear Herodias, you should just, if you have any understanding of the Old Testament, just think Jezebel. Jezebel, Herodias, same person. She's crazy and she's evil. I mean, she's just messed up evil. And so here is, uh, and Matthew's actually trying to make us think like that. Remember that uh, John John the Baptist is kind of the, the, the next Elijah and he had some, John the, or Elijah had some dealings with Jezebel. And so that's what's going on here. Now, even more crazy, that third brother, which I can't remember his name, he had a daughter uh, and her name was Herodias. And so Philip looks at his brother's daughter, his niece, and thinks to himself, you know what? Um, I sure would like to marry my niece. And so Philip decides that he's going to marry his niece, Herodias. This, I'm telling you, this is a crazy family. Crazy. And so what happens is one day, and this is just kind of conjecture, but I don't know how it is. There's a big family reunion, I guess. And Herod comes with his, you know, daughter of the Arabian, of the Arabian prince. And he's over there. And here's Herod Antipas. And there's Philip. And, and there's, you know, Philip's niece slash wife. Um, and here's Herodias. And he's like, gets over here next to, or here's Herod Antipas. He gets over here next to Herodias. And he's like, you know what? I think I'd be, I'd rather be married to you. Um, rather than this other lady. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to divorce this 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 uh, wife that I have, this first wife. I'm going to divorce her, and then I'm going to marry you. You are my niece and my sister-in-law. Now you're going to also become my wife. We're, we're going to drop the sister-in-law part, and you're just going to be my niece slash wife. And Philip can just figure it out for himself. Uh, he, he's not going to get to be married to you anymore. And so you can see, I mean, this is insane. This is just a crazy family. Um, and so here we have uh, Herodias who's now married to Herod Antipas. And it says that what happened in four is John had been coming up to him and saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, John's not making comments on the divorce. More than likely, the divorce was done by the law. The divorce of the first wife and the remarriage was all done according to Roman law. John is actually talking about the Old Testament laws, specifically from Leviticus 18, 16, and 20, 21, which says it's incestuous for you to be married to your brother's wife while he's still alive. Philip is still alive. And so John, as a matter of fact, the, the wording here is it says, because John had been, had been saying, and this had been saying is in the imperfect, which means continually. So this isn't just a one-time thing where John comes up and says, you can't be married to that. Uh, to that lady. You can't be married to Herodias. This is actually John the Baptist continually. Every chance he gets when he sees Herod down in the prison, when he's walking by through the halls or whatever, you can't be married to her. You're still breaking the law. So not only is John righteous, which we've seen as a prophet because he's still alive, he's also a very outspoken, courageous man for truth. And so every time he's walking by, hey, hey, Herod, you can't be married to her. You can't be married. So Herod's got to be thinking, who's this crazy cricket eater? Every time I'm walking down the halls, he's continually yelling at me. What the world's going on? Why can't? But he's saying John is going to be a very strong man. He's going to stand up for truth. He's even willing to be outcast and persecuted and put in prison because of this. And I think that that's a good model for us. We want to be like John the Baptist, in the sense that we want to strive for righteousness, be known for our righteousness, and stand up for truth. That's what John the Baptist is. And so here we see clearly John the Baptist is being painted to us by Matthew as a prophet. And 
Remember in the first section, we see Jesus as a prophet being rejected, and we want to strive to be like John the Baptist as a disciple, and so we can expect nothing different than being outcast or, or not respected as a disciple, just like these guys. And so here we see this, um, this continual of, of verse 4 of, of John saying, you can't be married to her, you can't be married to her, you can't be married to her. And Herodias, that's why she wanted him dead. She's like, I'm tired of that John the Baptist guy always telling us we can't be married. Let's just kill him. And Herod Antipas is like, we can't kill him. We can't kill him. That'll just make things crazy. You can see here in verse 5, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. They held him to be a prophet. So here we go, verse 6. Herod's birthday comes up. Happy birthday, Herod. It says, but when Herod's birthday came, I love Spurgeon's comment on this. He goes, no harm in keeping birthdays. Spurgeon says, there's no harm in keeping birthdays, but there is great harm in lewd dances. Um, and so that's what we're going to experience here. Um, <laughs> quick insight by Spurgeon. Um, and so we're going to see here, it came Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company. Let's just stop here for a second. The daughter of Herodias. So Herodias, Jezebel, has a daughter. And it, when it speaks of a daughter, one of the Jewish historians tells that she was probably somewhere between the age of 12 to 14. 12 to 14. Now, this is a really good thing or a really terrible thing that this sermon didn't fall next week on Mother's Day. Like, how to not be, don't be like this mother. But anyway, it didn't. It fell the week before. Um, but here we have Herodias Jezebel uh, telling her daughter, whose name was Salome, hey, 12 to 14-year-old, what I want you to do is I want you to go out there and dance for, you know, my husband and his, all the men there that are getting drunk. And, and I think that they'll really like that in a lewd, obvious lewd way. And so... You know, not the model mother whatsoever, but, you know, not necessarily a big surprise given all the past. It says here, when Herod's birthday came, New Harmon's in celebrating birthdays, it says that Herodias danced before the company, danced before the company, which is mostly comprised of men, danced before the company, and it pleased Herod. Sick, just sick, um... This was not cu- not customary, obviously, now, nor then would it be customary for one of your family members to go do something like this at, at a party. Now, not customary now, but kind of customary then would be to send your slave. There were times back then, and this, this is awful, that they had slave women that would go and do these kinds of things. But here, Herodias wants so desperately for something to happen for her. She's willing to take her little 13-year-old girl and send her out there and say, go dance for, for your stepdad, you know, great uncle, whatever he is, um, and, and do this dance because I feel like there's going to come some good things for me. I feel like some things are going to happen. And you can see Herod, he, he's drunk and in mixed company and he feels like he's kind of a big wig at the party and he wants to show off. He wants to be real macho. And so he throws out this, I'm going to buy everything. I'll do whatever you want. So he throws out this big promise to, to her. He says that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Whatever she might ask. makes this promise to a little 13-year-old girl. Whatever you want. Surprise, surprise. She doesn't ask for an iPod or an iPhone or even a new camel. She just runs over to mommy and she's like, Mommy, what should I ask for? What do I ask for? And so mommy says, What I want you to ask for, little girl, is ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Now, after that, in verse 9, it says... And the king was sorry. Now, it calls him king. He never was a king. This is just kind of a a term to remind us who we're talking about. Talking about Herod Antipas. And it says, 
And the king was sorry. The king was sorry. Sorry for many reasons. Uh, sorry because he made a, a foolish promise. And when he made this foolish promise, he knew he was going to have to save face in front of all his guests and keep this promise. Also, fool, uh, sorry, po- this is possible reason why he was sorry. And some of the commentators I read that sometimes whenever, I guess when Herodias wasn't around, he would go have some discussions with uh, John the Baptist about theology. This is this conjecture from one of the commentaries, and he's going to miss that. He knows he's going to miss it. So he's sorry for a lot of reasons, but he's mostly just sorry because he doesn't want to kill John the Baptist because when he does, that's going to get people mad at him. And he doesn't like, you know, rocking the boat of his, of his being a ruler. And so it makes him sorry uh, that he did this. But because of his oaths and his guests, because of this reckless promise he made and to save face in the guests he commanded it to be given so let's just pull out one little application here if you make a reckless promise or do one reckless thing the way you solve that is not by doing a second wrong thing that first wrong thing you did you repent and this is exactly he did a wrong thing made an oath and did a wrong second wrong thing by killing john so anytime we make some reckless thing or we do some reckless wrong the right response is not to try to cover it up again with something else wrong, but instead to repent and make things right. Um, but not here, not Mr. Prideful. He, uh, in verse 10 it says, He sent and he had John beheaded in the prison. He had John beheaded in the prison. And this was against the law. This is absolutely against the law. He was supposed to, John was supposed to be able to have a trial. But he didn't have a trial. It was no trial and a horrific death. No trial and a horrific death. And now we see, just slightly, a little bit of a messianic feel that Matthew's pointing for us. No trial, horrific death. And this is the same thing that's coming. And Herod thinks, obviously, because he just broke the law and he beheaded John the Baptist. Now we understand why up in verse 2, he's freaking out saying, this man Jesus is John the Baptist raised for the dead. He's coming back to get me because... I beheaded him, broke the law, and now he's coming back to get me. But here's the most amazing thing. This kind of messianic no trial, which is Jesus had no trial, terrible death, which Jesus had on the cross. Herod thinks that what he fears the most is the resurrection of John. No. He doesn't fear the resurrection of John. Because there was one who had no trial. There was one who was wrongly killed in a horrific way. But his resurrection is the one that he has to fear the most. Because he has the power to condemn anyone who doesn't believe. And so this is just some amazing things that's going on here. That uh, Matthew's kind of faintly putting in. Which becomes more apparent as we go through the text. And so we see here. He beheaded John in the prison. Which was absolutely uh, against the law. And he did it just to save face. And it said, look, listen to the messed up nature of this family. And his head was brought on a platter. I don't understand the platter thing. I really don't. I don't know if it's just because like John ate bugs. And so the irony of him being on a platter or whatever. But it's brought on a platter. Um, I don't know if, I mean, seriously, it might be that. And it says, and given, look at this, to the girl, 13-year-old girl. Here's a head on a platter. And then she takes it and gives it to her mother she takes and give it to her mother so this just you know a really messed up family and then it says and his disciples that's john's john disciples came and they took the body and they buried it so they treated john's body with respect they really looked forward to john and there's this turn in those disciples in verse 12 this turn of they they were the disciples of john he's no more and now they are 
the disciples of Jesus joining the rest. Remember, disciple doesn't just mean the 12. It means followers. And so now Jesus is gathering in more followers here. And it says they went and they told Jesus. So just to sum up, in the first section, we see Jesus not receiving honor because they didn't believe him. Here we see John not receiving honor because he did believe Jesus. And he doesn't receive honor. Now, in verse 14, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verses 1 and 12, uh, nestled away even so slightly, there's some bookends that I want us to see. In verse 1, we see the Tetrarch, and he heard about the fame of Jesus. And so we see this name Jesus. And at the very end, in verse uh, 12, it ends with the name Jesus. And so, obviously, this is who the whole story is about. It's about not just the resurrection of John that we're to fear, but the resurrection of Jesus that he is to fear. And we'll notice that also, since he's trying to point us, Matthew, I think, is trying to point us that this is all about Christ, and that's why he led off with verses 50 through 58 about Jesus, and now he's talking about the follower of John, but still bookends that entire story with Jesus on both sides, just to remind us, everything's still all about Christ. Then, this is the most interesting thing. Um, It says here in verse 1, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So he never actually saw Christ. He just heard about it. But, as I said, the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that he needs to fear. There is a time, and it happens a year later in Herod's life, where he actually does come face to face with Jesus. Here he only heard in Matthew 14 about. But, I want you to see this. Luke actually records it for us in Luke 23, where he does record for us where Herod finally gets to see Jesus face to face. He finally gets to see it, starting at verse 6, 23, 6 and following. This is, this is that terrible, not even real trial that Jesus kind of halfway had. And Pilate's like, I don't know what to do with you. Send you over to Herod, because Herod's in town. And so we see there in verse 6, it says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a, Gal- a Galilean. And Jesus was a Galilean, and Herod was the tetrarch over that area. And he said, And he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. And he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And so here's Herod's final chance. He had only heard about this man, Jesus. This is Herod's chance in Luke 23, where he's going to see him face to face. And this is the exchange that happens. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. He had heard about him. He wanted to know what was going on. For he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him, which we were told in Matthew. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, we've already talked about this before, that those who seek signs don't really seek Christ. They just like a, they just like the show. They just want to see a big circus act. They don't want to know Christ, which we've already, as we've been going through Matthew, we saw this. And this is exactly Herod's heart. He finally does see Jesus face to face, and his heart is still of heart and unbelief. He just wants to see a sign, and we can see this in, in verse 9. So he questioned him at some length. Are you John the Baptist? Do you know who Herodias is? Like, whatever he's asking, who knows? And then he says, but, here it is, verse 9, Jesus made no answer. So he finally has the chance, Herod does, to hear, see, and understand who Christ is. And all he wants is a show. And Christ doesn't even talk to him. Doesn't even give him a word. Because he knows his heart. And so he sees that there's no unbelief still in Herod's heart. I mean, all these things that had happened, Herod still just wants the show. And so I think maybe the way for us to summarize this as we've been going through, the way that we can kind of conclude with some kind of application for us is um, 
Whenever Christ came to his hometown, it says that he did mighty words and works. He, he spoke with wisdom and words and works. And so what we want to do is we want to believe in such a way that we will go out and we will tell people of the mighty words of Jesus and the mighty works of Jesus. And if we do that, then we can see in verse 58 that there, there will be, however the Lord chooses to bless, we don't know, there will be mighty works. We all said in the very beginning, we want to see mighty works happen in our midst. And here we want to see, and he's saying, live for, live for me, tell people of me, do mighty works in my name, and then you will see mighty works. And then, lastly, in 14.1, then we want to also be about spreading the fame of Jesus. We want to be about spreading the fame of Christ. Now, in these two sections, we see prophets not receiving any honor whatsoever. For their words, their wisdom, their works that they're doing, and the truth that they're proclaiming. They're not seeing that. If you do that, you may see response. And praise God if you do. If you see people meet Jesus, rejoice and be glad. But you also might not. And if you don't, it doesn't mean quit and give up. It means keep going on. Because if Christ wasn't, we shouldn't be surprised. If Christ did not receive it, then we might not either. We might be persecuted as well. So I think the only fitting way for us to really conclude with is a couple quotes from John the Baptist. A couple quotes from John the Baptist. These are both from the book of John. And I think both of these quotes, these are my favorite, two of my favorite quotes from John the Baptist um, that he said. And the first one comes from John one twenty nine. Whenever in the very beginning of John's gospel, he sees, um, Jesus sees John the Baptist, I'm sorry, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking and he points over to Jesus, and he gets the attention of the people, and he looks at him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's exactly what we need to do. As you're going through the rest of your life, and we've all said, I want to see mighty works in my midst. I want to see them in my life and in my church. One of the things we need to do is we need to take people's attention and away from us, and we need to see, Behold, the Lamb of God. He's the one that takes away the sins of the world. Believe in His work on the cross for your forgiveness. Associate and believe and to say, that was my death on the cross when he died. And the life that, that, was, that he had when he was raised from the dead is now mine. All of his righteousness is given to me. That's, that's the message of the gospel that you proclaim. You want to point people and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as you're going through life, pointing people, what would be the right mindset to do that? What would be the most appropriate Christ-honoring mindset to do that? John 30. I'm sorry, John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. You will do that if you think all his desires, all his wants, all his plans, all his truth, those are the things that should increase in my life. The things that I want, my selfish desires, my sinful habits, my sinful tendencies, those things must decrease. As I'm telling people, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, I'm also pursuing Christ's likeness with everything I have. And my mindset as I go through this life is, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And so that's what's going on here. And I think that that's the way we should approach this. A prophet will receive honor and is due honor. None of us are prophets, but we're all disciples. And so as a disciple, this is the mindset you should have as you go through. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of response where however the Holy Spirit's leading you, I want you to, to stand and sing. I want you to read and pray. If you need to repent of not having this kind of mindset, you need to repent for 
having one time where something happened and you just kind of gave up, whatever the Holy Spirit's doing, I want you to spend some time in repentance um, or in, in, in worship or wherever the Holy Spirit's leading. You have a few songs that you can do that in. But also, before that, um, after I pray, we're going to see a testimony video of Anna. She's going to, um, on video, give her testimony, and then um, we're going to baptize her, where this baptism is representing exactly what we want other people to know. We're, we're representing in this water, as they go down, they're associating themselves as saying, I have been buried with Christ in baptism, and now I have been raised to in newness of life to pursue him and, and, and live a life where he must increase and I must decrease. So we're going to see the video and then we're going to see her get baptized in which we're going to just, we're going to celebrate and we're going to be excited. Everybody's going to clap and scream. And then after that, um, <laughs> then we're going to, we're going to have a time of worship where um, in view, in view of the, the celebration that Christ, what, what he's done in one particular person's life and what Christ is telling you right now, as you've read these verses, you're going to celebrate and you're going to stand up and sing and we're just going to worship. However the Holy Spirit's wired you, however you feel He's leading you, I want you to stand and sing in that way. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a baptism and we're going to worship together. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given us to gather around your word and have the Holy Spirit teach us. And I pray that everything I've said that's unhelpful would just be forgotten. And Lord, those things that are true and those things that are Holy Spirit given, that you would take those things and press them down deep into my heart and our hearts and that we would pursue Christ's likeness. We would pursue Jesus and that we would just find ourselves wanting to see those two verses happen in our lives where we are looking at people and we're saying, behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we have the mindset that he must increase and I must decrease. Be with us now as we respond through song. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.